Hi, I'm Kathleen Hicks, Senior Vice President and Director of the International Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And this is Defense 2020, a CSIS podcast examining critical defense issues in the United States' 2020 election cycle. We bring in defense experts from across the political spectrum to survey the debates over the U.S. military strategy, missions, and funding. This podcast is made possible by contributions from BAE Systems, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and the Talus Group. On this episode of Defense 2020, I'll be speaking with three experts from here at CSIS about innovation in the Department of Defense. Todd Harrison, Director of Defense Budget Analysis and the Aerospace Security Project. Morgan Dwyer, Deputy Director for Policy Analysis in the Defense Industrial Initiatives Group, and Lindsay Shepard, a fellow in the International Security Program. So we have been focused in the last several episodes of this podcast on the politics around defense and security out on the campaign trail. Meanwhile, back at the Pentagon, there are many issues still pressing, and we want to get back into those issues before we close out this election year and talk in particular today about some of the priority efforts underway around the concept of defense innovation. So, Todd, I'm going to start with you. We, we always like to get sort of the, the baseline budget facts right here. And what we have in the FY21 request that was put forward by the Trump administration earlier this year, DOD had said it has its largest RDT and needs largest research budget in its history in that request, $107 billion. Talk to us a little bit about how we should think about this idea of this major investment in R&D this year amidst this push for defense innovation. Do we expect real change from that kind of signaling um, and will it be sustained? Yeah, well, so it is true that, you know, the RDT&E part of the budget does reach a high in FY21, but there's a few caveats. So first of all, if you adjust for inflation, it's actually flat at last year's level. So really, you know, while it went up, it just went up with inflation. And more importantly, if you look at the five-year projection, it actually declines in every year in the future. So they project that over the next five years, they will cut RDT&E funding by about 13% adjusting for inflation. And so what that tells us is as much as they are talking about the need to modernize, the need to invest in new technologies, it's really not fully fleshed out in their budget yet, in their five-year plan. You know, while we see the overall budget is basically flat with inflation, RDT&E is going down, personnel costs are actually going up, not because they're growing people, but because the cost per person is growing. So, you know, I think that there's really an incomplete here. It doesn't quite match up what they're talking about in terms of investing in new technologies and the importance of that to the overall defense strategy and what we're seeing reflected in the budget. No, I just want to stay on this budget point. We've talked about it in, in prior episodes before, but in the context of innovation, you can often hear rhetorically is this is about legacy trading off with future capability. And certainly that is a, a big issue. But Todd, you, you're pointing out that it's actually not quite that simple. This isn't just about procurement versus R&D. This is about other parts of the defense budget. Do you think that that's appreciated or do you still hear a lot of this legacy versus new capability trade-off as the frame? 
Yeah, we do still see that that framing uh, of legacy versus, you know, new, more modern, capable technologies. And I think that, you know, they're kind of whistling past the graveyard to use an old expression that, you know, really they should be looking at, okay, how do we control our personnel and our operation and maintenance costs? Because ultimately those parts of the budget have been growing faster than inflation year after year. So to maintain the same size force in the future, you're actually going to more and more of your budget will be consumed by MILPERS and O&M. And that just leaves less money for procurement, RDT and e All these you know, great investments we talk about in technology are going to get squeezed if we just try to maintain the same size force and don't get those costs under control. So really the, the key to modern Modernizing is actually not about technology at all. It's about controlling our personnel and our operation and maintenance costs or being willing to substitute technology for labor and actually invest in technologies that will reduce our dependency on having so many people in our force. So Secretary Esper has outlined his top 11 modernization initiatives. There's, I'm not going to go through all 11, but things people are probably quite familiar with in terms of artificial intelligence, cyber, directed energy, lots of areas inside that 11 of focus. So let me turn to Lindsay and then to Morgan. And, you know, tell me a little bit about these priorities. Do you feel like the department's headed in the right direction? Where do you think they're going to get the most bang for their buck in these new areas? I think, I mean, looking at these priorities, it's about what I would expect. I think where we could use some fidelity and some additional thinking is how are we grouping these things together? Because they are quite disparate in the ways in which we need to approach these modernization areas. And, and I don't think you can compare just all 11 to each other one for one. So I would say looking at things like quantum sensing and computing, this is an area where we're going to need to see long-term sustained R&D. This is very early days. Um, it is certainly a capability worth investing in, um, but it is one that, you know, we just need to have that sustained focus and attention paid to this in R&D and, and you're investing for the future here. I would say things like directed energy and hypersonics, maybe a little bit of space are probably about in kind of that midterm, near term bucket. Um, you know, you're seeing some operationalizing, some actually coming online, but still very R&D heavy. There's areas like AI, autonomy and cyber that I think are a bit more near-term focus. And kind of the through line on that is that they do require a significant investment in our digital infrastructure. We need to have, you know, advanced IT capabilities. Um, this kind of gets a little bit into other modernization priorities that have come out, like the AI strategy, like the data strategy, the digital engineering approaches. And then finally, there's this other bucket of, of modernization priorities looking at microelectronics and 5G, which are which are critically important to the department, but in a bit of a new way, they are playing a supporting role to commercial. Um, they still need to play a role, but will be one voice at a table of many in areas that will be critically important in the future. And so that's how I'm kind of looking at, you know, these different modernization areas. I'm thinking about how are they prioritized against each other and within each other. Yeah, so just to build off of Lindsay's point, I think that there there probably does need to be a bit more bucketing of the, the capabilities that are highlighted here. Um, so as Lindsay pointed out, there are some capabilities that are pretty operationalized today. So cyber, for example, cyber command was established over 10 years ago. So it's not really an emerging capability in the same way that 
quantum science or hypersonics might be. Uh, space sort of fits in that bucket as well. One technology that I am excited to see on the list, however, is biotech. And that's because it's a new one for DOD. Uh, you know, I think the pandemic has has really opened up the national security community's eyes to the importance of these really poorly defined non-traditional transnational threats. So things like pandemics and climate change and biotech capabilities and synthetic biology in particular are being used today to help us deal with the pandemic and to rapidly develop and manufacture vaccines. There's also interesting applications for synthetic biology and things like body armor and to the field of energy and climate change. So I'm really excited that that particular technology is on the list. Now you're getting to you know, the heart of the matter, which is this is a lot of stuff. I mean, I've got to, I don't say that disparagingly, but presumably we need to explain, you know, why we want this stuff versus other stuff and what we want this stuff to do. And you're pointing out, Morgan, you know, often people, when they're thinking of defense innovation today, they're thinking very much in the competition context and they're thinking explicitly at the high-end war fight part of competition. You're pointing out that there are other mission sets potentially that could become very important for DOD. So I just welcome your thoughts on the you know, how you think DOD is doing in terms of framing these modernization priorities around a sense, a concept, a theory of victory of what it is trying to achieve. So I, th- I think you you point out a key gap in framing our investments and mapping those investments to sort of our future concept of operation. You know, I think the department is working on this new joint warfighting concept, which I think is going to resemble something along the lines of what has been articulated for JADC2 or Joint All Domain Command and Control. That's this idea that every sensor is going to connect to every shooter and that you're going to sprinkle in a little bit of AI and that's going to allow you to operate at the speed of relevance, as DoD likes to say. It's not too different from what we were talking about a couple of years ago when we were talking about the third offset. And so I think there is a need to map the investments and the modernization investments to that concept of operation. And I'm not sure I see that mapping being done right now. Yeah, you know, Todd, I actually go all the way back to Joint Vision 2020, which is sort of the the Clinton era in the 90s, very similar thread you can pull in terms of the vision, which we seem to have not achieved because we keep coming up with new names for the same thing. Do you think, Todd, that the department is heading in the right direction, it's focused in the right areas, and it is paying attention to the concept piece sufficiently? I think that they are thinking about the right problems. They're asking the right questions. They're, they're focused in the right areas. The challenge is that we have to move beyond just, you know, investing in technologies. We have to also invest in how are these technologies going to be integrated into our force structure and to our operational concepts, as Morgan was saying. And so that's where I think that we're not paying enough attention. So JADC2 is a great example. I think everyone and all the services can agree, you know, that we need to be able to communicate better. All of our forces need to be able to communicate with one another in a future battlefield. That is not the case today. We have a lot of stovepipe systems. And so we've got to basically erase the seams in that so that we can have one unified battle network that everyone can connect to and see everything in near real time. You know, the challenge though we're seeing play out is the Air Force raises their hand first and says, oh, we got JADC2. That's our thing. 
Okay. And, you know, they've been working on that a few years. They have just now signed a two-year, a limited two-year agreement with the Army to cooperate on you know developing some of the specifications for how this battle network network would work but notably absent from that is the navy also the space force <laughs> and a lot of these uh, communication networks and sensors either go through space now are enabled by space or are going to move to space in the coming years and so you know, how do you get them to actually all work together? I think it actually boils down to a, a roles and missions problem. That's something that, you know, the next administration is going to need to address. You know, give us a primary service that can start building out, you know, the backbone of that so that all the other services know what they need to connect into. And right now, I, I don't think it's clear who that is. I have to let Morgan weigh in on this, as I know it's an issue of great passion of yours on the organizational culture side on JADC2. Sure. So, you know, I think the Air Force is doing good work on JADC2. I think there's a lot of value in sort of the, the demonstrations and experimentation that they're doing, and they're gaining a lot of knowledge by doing sort of that work from the bottom up. But there's really sort of two problems with that sort of bottom-up approach. One is exactly what Todd highlighted, is that this cannot be an Air Force project alone. And there's, there's two reasons for that. One, from an acquisition perspective, it's very hard for the services to work together collaboratively on, of their own devices. Um, and so you really need an OSD-level governance structure to sort of force the collaboration that you want. From an operational perspective... The Air Force also can't drive C2 decisions that might cross combatant commands. So one of the biggest challenges that I see for JAD C2, and Todd sort of alluded to this as well, we now have combatant commands for cyber and space, and we have several geographic combatant commands. So what happens when operations cross combatant commands? Who is in charge? The Air Force can't answer that question, so they really need joint-level direction. I think the one other sort of limitation of the Air Force's current approach to JADC2, and I know that they've been dinged by the Government Accountability Office for this, is that they're sort of lacking a strategic vision for what comes next. So, you know, they've done these demonstrations. What's the goal in the next year, in the next two years? What do I get after doing these demonstrations? Do I leave any capability behind? And I think the community is still lacking answers to those questions. And I think until we get answers to those questions, there will be remaining questions about whether the department is going to want to spend money on this. So I, this brings me back to the joint warfighting concept, which is, you know, said to be coming out at the end of this year and how we would judge its success. So, so Lindsay, let me turn to you, taking into account everything that we've heard from Todd and Morgan about their concerns on JADC2, you know, these long list, appropriately long list of modernization areas where the U.S. has to move out. How would you see success if there's a new joint warfighting concept? What would success look like? It would require a lot of focus on the people. And that is the, the one through line in all of these technologies and in all of these concepts. And I don't see enough focus on modernizing our people, if, if that's what we want to call it. I will say, you know, kudos to the Space Force, because so far they're the only organization that has come out and said that a foundational digital literacy will be part of every person's education and training to be a member of the force. So they haven't said, is that going to be, you know, IT? Is that going to be cyber? But they are thinking through that there are these new concepts that every human has to have 
to be a member of the armed services in the Department of Defense in this future high-end fight, in the future fight. So, you know, not only do I need to have men and women who can go into austere environments and maintain and fix hardware and equipment, I need, you know, if we're really talking about having a fully networked force where data is a strategic asset, I need them all to know, you know, the basics at least of how do I set up and protect my network infrastructure? How do I protect my data? And so there's this kind of like strong argument to be made that, you know, each of these modernization priorities are going to very intimately and digitally touch each person in the Department of Defense. And so I think success at a very basic level starts with, you know, having that foundational literacy so that we can actually capitalize and move out on these technologies. And you mentioned data. There's a new data strategy also out from DOD this month. It's been it's been very busy inside DOD. You know, jump ball. Who can describe to me what this data strategy is meant to do and how successful it seems to be in laying mapping out an approach? I can take this one. I do actually have it right in front of me, so this is great. So I will say again, kudos to them. They have a great vision statement. To quote the the data strategy. DOD is a data-centric organization that uses data at speed and scale for operational advantage and increased efficiency. So they've done, you know, exactly what you just asked. What does success look like? How will we know when we've done this right? That's the vision. You know, they, I believe we said Vice Chair Hyten said that recently said the DOD would be able to manage its data by 2030. You know, realistically for the entirety of DOD, that is incredibly ambitious. I would expect to see, you know, various pockets coming online sooner. But, you know, this is the largest employer in the world. And we're talking about taking the largest employer and turning them into a data-centric, data-driven organization in 10 years is very ambitious goal. I, I hope to see them succeed. But, you know, we're going to have to weather multiple leadership changes. So that priority is going to have to, you know, cross through each of these changes. The reality is that this is going to take a lot of changes from the department I think, you know, the strategy does a good job of laying out, you know, what are those top level goals? We want data to be accessible. We want it to be usable. You know, we're thinking through how do we get it into the right places and the right times? You know, it's, you know, really a a department wide effort. They have directed each of the services to come up and send back to them their implementation plans to start thinking through how do we, how do we do this? But I will say, you know, if you get to the end of the document, it's one paragraph, you know, implementation plans, we're going to do this. So the real kicker is, you know, how do we actually move out on this? And I know they've said that we expect to see at the end of this year, some requirements and standards that will be handed down to the services. So certainly we will be keeping an eye on that. But really, I think it it all comes down to implementation and how do we get the ball rolling on this digital modernization effort? Todd, what is the cost implication here? Is it, you know, a kind of a classical near-term investment for long-term savings expectation? What do you think having better data management will end up meaning for DOD in in the cost sense? Yeah, well, I'll have to dust off my uh, cost estimates for net-centric capabilities, and then I'll plug into the gig and uh, figure out uh, the answer. (laughs) 
No, uh, you know, I, I, I can't help but joke a little because we kind of have we've been through this before. Right. And, you know, we've seen previous efforts to try to, you know, make DOD more digitally aware and enabled. You know, if anything, maybe the effort to get the Pentagon audited could be a good example, because ultimately passing the audit has boiled down to upgrading your data systems, the way that the department collects and tracks and aggregates its cost data was antiquated. A lot of the systems dated back to the 80s and 90s. And so it's been this, you know, multi-decade process of gradually upgrading and then validating those systems. So I think to really do this right, you're looking at, you know, and probably more than a 10 year, more like a generational changeover in some of these back office systems and processes that are being used. This could be billions of dollars, but it will be, it's not going to be any one single program. It's not going to be a single program that does this. It's going to be in lots of little pieces spread across the organization. So I'm, I'm not sure you could ever really account for how much it costs. I'll say that I think that there are a lot of potential savings that go with it as well. I am most excited uh, about the business analytics part of it. And, you know, I know that, you know, it's great for, you know, doing engineering and it's great for doing, you know, joint all domain operations. But really, I think the department could stand to gain the most right now from improving its back end business processes in terms of how it funds for and how it tracks and measures readiness data from the force and how it allocates resources and funds its personnel costs in order to achieve its recruiting, retention and skill level goals. There is a, a ton of data out there. It just needs to collect it. It needs to be able to aggregate it and process it and make better decisions based on that data. And there are tremendous savings that could result from that. Now, let's talk about one of those back office areas for many people inside the Beltway. It's an area of some obsession, which is the acquisition process. But if you're outside the, the Beltway and you're not working for a, a company that's life depends on the Defense Department, you probably don't think too much about it. But there's just been tremendous over the last five years, tremendous amount of shift and change on the acquisition side. And we could not encapsulate it all here, but I just trying to stick to the things that are that are of particular importance right now. We have recently had our Air Force Service Acquisition Executive Will Roper release what he describes as a matrix-inspired guide to digital acquisition process. What do you think about the way Will Roper has put forward this idea of digital acquisition? Describe it a little bit and then talk about whether you think it can be successful. Sure. So Will Roper's vision is really to integrate a bunch of buzzwords, but they're more than just buzzwords. So things like digital engineering, open architecture, and DevOps to change the way we do acquisition. And the the major way he wants to change things is to field capabilities faster, to field smaller sets of capabilities and sort of rapidly iterate. So smaller fleets of aircraft and put it put out a new aircraft every, I think his his latest number was seven to eight years. So to, to sort of shift the cost curve from spending a lot of money in ONS to spending more money in research and development and procurement, which I do think is a really great idea. And I do think the logic of integrating all of those 
those capabilities might yield a change in that cost curve. What I'll throw out there, though, is using all of these buzzwords and fancy new capabilities like digital engineering or digital twins, that's not going to be the game changer here. So the goal for the Digital Century series is to get out a new aircraft every seven to eight years. If you look at DOD's history of delivering aircraft since 1960, the median time that it took for it to deliver aircraft was 6.4 years. So 6.4 years to get from milestone B to initial operating capability or IOC. Since 1960, when we didn't have these fancy buzzword capabilities like digital engineering. So even though I think digital engineering actually is very promising, I don't think it's what's necessary to speed things up. Speeding things up takes requirements discipline. And so what that means is instead of asking your first aircraft to do 10 million high performance and complex things all at once and on your first variant, you spread it out over multiple variants. So you say, okay, on the first plane, I'm only going to get 5 million of the things that I want. On the second plane, which is going to come out a couple years later, I'm going to get 7 million and so on. So that's really what's going to be the game changer. And it's hard to assess that in Roper's concept because the actual requirements in the aircraft are all classified. Todd, that sounds a lot like spiral development. Are these thoughts linked? <laughs> They're linked, yeah. And I, you know, I'll, I'll first say that trying to read the the document that Will Roper put out, getting past the formatting, which made it almost impossible to read, and then trying to get past all of the matrix quotes and the you know kind of Silicon Valley programmer speak, you know, trying to really drill down to what he was saying. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of different types of engineering approaches, modern approaches that are already used quite widely in the commercial industry and used in a lot of the defense companies too. The real difference that I see is bringing the government side into that digital baseline for you know, different weapon systems. And you know, I, I think it's great. I think absolutely the government should be in there. I think that you know we should be using more of these digital processes. I would caution that you know, you can only model for things that you know exist, you know, physical phenomena and things that you know exist, you can feed into your models and test for that. It is not a perfect substitute for real world testing in the analog world, because you often find a physical phenomena that you did not realize were going on. So they could not have been built into your model. And so, you know, it's not a, a perfect substitute, but I think it is in general a good approach I think where it starts to break down is not the digital engineering side of it, but really more on the acquisition strategy side of it. This idea of let's front load the cost, let's spend more on research and development and procurement up front. Let's throw away things, you know, once they start to get old and then buy new ones. And then we'll, in theory, spend less on operation and sustainment in the long run. I think that is a recipe for disaster for the Air Force, quite frankly, that it's the promise of spending more up front in order to save money in the future. Well, what happens 15, 20 years from now when Congress says, yeah, we're not going to let you retire those aircraft because everyone loves the A-10, right? <laughs> we're going to make you keep it. And so you do end up paying those higher ONS costs after all. And ultimately, I think it could limit the ability of the Air Force to maintain capacity, the overall quantity of aircraft that it has in the inventory, I think, could actually go down over time under this approach. Now, with that said, I think that this acquisition strategy could be successfully applied to other types of weapon systems where they don't have you know, the very long lingering ONS costs, where they are already front loaded in terms of their system costs. 
being in R&D and procurement. So examples would be munitions, satellites, things like that, where the ONS costs are trivial. It's really upfront cost anyway. That's where I think this might be better applied. It's really, really helpful and thoughtful way to, to walk through that. I want to quickly hit on three specific modernization areas at different levels of maturity, as you all have already talked through, space, cyber, and artificial intelligence. So let me start on the space side, Todd. Tell us about how you think the Space Force evolution is going and the degree to which we have essentially a, a clear way ahead with the creation of Space Force on space investment in particular. Yeah, so I think in terms of standing up this new service and transferring over the, the people and the organizations and existing programs, I think it's so far so good. It's going smoothly, but they really haven't hit the hard part yet. The hard part is when they start moving over people and units and programs from the other services, from the Navy and the Army into the Space Force. And so that's something to be looking for over you know the next year or so. In terms of the acquisition priorities for space, right now we're really on a two-track system. So one track being run by the Space Force is, you know, we're continuing to buy the next generation of the space capabilities they traditionally had under Air Force Space Command. So we're buying the next generation of missile warning satellites. We're buying another generation of protected communication satellites, although they're disaggregating the tactical and strategic missions onto different systems. But, you know, they're, they're buying those next generation type systems. In parallel to that, You've got the Space Development Agency that is off on the side. It's under OSD, and they are actually talking about and, and starting to move out on uh, developing whole new types of capabilities, new space missions that we didn't previously have that would be enabled by new types of architectures. So they're looking at initially building out proliferated low-Earth orbit constellations for data transport and for missile sensing. And, you know, different than what the Air Force has traditionally done because they're going to be in different orbits. They'll be much more proliferated. They'll be able to track missiles through all phases of their flight. They'll be able to move data around to forces on the Earth with much lower latency because it doesn't have to go 22,000 miles out to geostationary orbit and back. So they're looking at really creating very different architectures. And so you've got these different acquisition approaches that are really going forward in parallel right now. And one of the things I'll be watching in a new administration is, is that allowed to continue or do, you know, one of these approaches gets redirected or changed in some way? And how do they eventually merge back in together uh, once the Space Development Agency is transferred over to the Space Force at some point in the future? So let's turn to cyber, Morgan. The department is probably well expected to spend something like $10 billion on cyber, hard enough probably just to basket what counts as cyber activities. But so we, I would take that as a minimum. What do you think in terms of the department's incorporation and advancement of cyber investments? What are we getting for these funds? So I think that's a really important question to be asking all the time. And in addition to asking what things is DOD buying, what cyber things is DOD buying, we should also also ask the question of what value are we getting 
from those things and from spending that money. When you ask that question to Cyber Command, when you ask them to sort of help you measure their effectiveness, they start getting pretty squeamish. They don't like answering that question. So what Cyber Command will say is that they are spending money on their persistent engagement strategy. The idea behind persistent engagement is essentially you're doing stuff in cyberspace. That stuff tends to be offensive cyber operations that are intended to make your adversaries' lives a little bit harder. So for example, the Washington Post recently reported that Cyber Command took down a Russian botnet for a couple of days. So the question that we should be asking ourselves is, what's the value of that operation if the botnet is up and running again? which it was after Cyber Command's operation. We should also be asking ourselves, you know, if you're persistently engaging, how do you know when you're done? Will you ever be done? And to me, it sort of seems like we're spending, as you mentioned, about $10 billion. We're spending money to stitch together a set of tactical operations that we're calling a strategy. And I think we should probably do a little bit better uh, for that amount of money. All right, let's turn now to last but not least AI. Lindsay, the Jake is now up and running under its second commander. So it's it's survived its first transition, which for any organization in the Pentagon is an important, it lived on. How do you see AI as a priority for the department? Is it organizing itself for success? There's really kind of a, a broader enterprise in on AI within the department. So we have the Jake, which is situated under the, the chief data officer, um, which, I mean, I do think makes sense given its immediate goal on, I have to operationalize AI for the department. And so much of what they're having to do depends on getting that first piece of the puzzle, that data piece ready. So as an organization, they have grown from their inception in, in June of 2018. You know, they had funding of 89 million and, and four people. And in, by spring 2020, they'll have a budget of 243 million and 75 people. So certainly we're growing and, and onboarding. But part of their challenge is that given the way that the uh, organization was set up to be that centralized effort for decentralized development is they don't have direct acquisition authorities. They're not buying things. Their role is to essentially go out to the services and say, who is doing AI? Who wants to procure AI? Who wants to build a system? Who wants to, you know, bring data-driven techniques, particularly machine learning, into their organization and then incentivize them and support them along that goal? So how do I go out and find the people that are maybe a part of part of the way there or getting there and then support them to do that? which means they need to have more levers to do that incentivizing. Is that either, am I able to provide technical support and financial support, but they're not going to be doing that procurement directly, which I think makes sense, but I don't know if they've truly been given all of the levers that they need to really be able to do that mission. But then we also look within R&E, there is an AI ML group that is more forward thinking. We also have to recognize that artificial intelligence and machine learning and robotics has all been existing within each of the services labs. So we really do have this kind of like disparate enterprise that is driven on software, driven on data, of which the Jake is one small piece. And I, I do think, you know, how do we measure success in this standpoint is a little bit difficult because perhaps I don't need artificial intelligence for my problem, but I do need a modern data environment. I do need good modern computing hardware. I do need computer scientists and data scientists. And maybe my solution isn't machine learning. It's just 
you know, traditional optimization or statistics or modeling and simulation. So I do think there's kind of a, a broader framing here of are we preparing the department for these, you know, digital techniques and data-driven operations? And in a way, kind of setting the Jake down in this situation where we're saying, well, you know, your people are operating on, you know, computers that cost $100. They don't have data. They don't have the right networking. And so in some ways, I think they have been given an incredibly difficult task because the rest of the pieces of the puzzle aren't there. You know, part of their work is looking on how do we get the data governance and data standards in place. You wouldn't call that AI, but it is an incredibly important part of this. And so I think, you know, given their their charter, they're they're doing well, but are, are certainly fighting an uphill battle. Yeah, that's great. And I think it really underscores your point on the workforce piece of this and the governance piece. Since we made light of Will Roper's use of the matrix for his digital acquisition approach, I want to challenge each of you to give me a pop culture reference that maybe uh, you think is more apt, maybe more current, if you so choose, for what you're seeing these days inside DOD and defense innovation. And if you bonus points, if it's something you've been streaming during COVID, as we all have. So let me start with you, Lindsay. So I actually just watched Moneyball for the very first time last night, not in any way connected to recording this podcast, but we've got to keep ourselves entertained during COVID. And I think it, it was really perfectly capturing what we're talking about today. You know, we're talking about, you know, an organization that runs on the very best industrial era practices, makes decisions based on intuition, and this is what we've always done mentality. And we're saying, how do we bring that organization into the digital era? How do we make it data-driven and analytics-based decision-making? And that has to be throughout the entirety of the organization from, you know, individuals to middle managers, senior leaders, all the way up to, say, you know, the Secretary of Defense. You know, unfortunately, unlike Moneyball, the Department of Defense is not the Oakland A's and it's not the Boston Red Sox. They're not the first ones through the door on this. I'd say they're middle of the pack at best. Uh, but you certainly don't want to be the last organization to decide that it's going to transition to this data-driven way of making decisions um, and viewing the world. So I think, you know, the movie perfectly captures a lot of the resistance and inertia that we face within the department that we have to overcome. But I would certainly like to see a sequel that would be very apt, which would be, you know, who was that last baseball team to finally adapt and what are the costs of of waiting it out to the end? Great. Morgan, what's your pick? Yeah, so for another outdated pop culture reference, I always have the West Wing on in my home when I'm doing things. And, you know, I think it applies to defense acquisition uh, because, you know, if you want to get things done and modernize, you're going to have to uh, move fast and walk and talk while you walk. That's great. Uh, Todd, how about you? Yeah. So, Lindsay, I love Moneyball as well. I actually wrote a whole report one time about military readiness based on the concepts in Moneyball. In terms of what I've been streaming, uh, I actually, uh, during the, uh, the lockdown, I've been all the way through all the seasons of Downton Abbey. <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I've never watched out Nabby Todd. That's impressive. <laughs> and and I will say that the Dowager, the grandmother character, is full of great one-liners. The most appropriate, though, for the, our current work environment is where she says, what's a weekend? <laughs> 
having no idea what the concept of a weekend time, is. Time is meaningless. Well, that's a perfect way. Hopefully people spend some time with us uh, on Defense 2020. Todd Harrison, Morgan Dwyer, Lindsay Shepard, thank you all for joining me today. On behalf of CSIS, I'd like to thank our sponsors, BAE Systems, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and the Talis Group for contributing to Defense 2020. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out some of our other CSIS podcasts, including Smart Women, Smart Power, The Truth of the Matter, The Asia Chessboard, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org podcasts to see our full catalog. And for all of CSIS's defense-related content, visit defense360.csis.org.